This is Eric Corey. And before I get into the topic of climate change, I first want to talk about clouds. You know, the big white things that live in the sky? We see them all the time, but most of us really don't notice them. But they're always there in different sizes and shapes and quantities. There's the big puffy cumulus clouds that block the sun, the wispy cirrus clouds, the rain-bearing nimbus clouds, the high-altitude clouds we can only see when flying above them at 30,000 feet, uh, just to name a few. The clouds are everywhere all the time, and unless you live in the desert or in some sunnier locations, they are present almost every day. Clouds are such a huge part of any landscape, and yet most people don't pay much attention to them. But please, check it out. Each and every day, take a moment to notice clouds. You will find them quite attractive against a blue sky, but most importantly, you will see how omnipresent they really are. Where I live near the coast, we have what's known as the marine layer. I'm sure it's rather common in most areas adjacent to large bodies of water. Thick layers of clouds that can be miles deep that hang around during certain times of the year. Around here, we call it May gray and June gloom. Now, this cloud cover hovers over our city for weeks at a time. These are dense, water-bound clouds that drive our ambient temperatures and set the mood for an entire city. The tourists, they hate them, but us locals, we welcome the warm temperatures without a hot sun. Clouds are just a mixture of liquid water and ice. They come from the water that covers the surface of most of our planet and are an essential part of what makes this planet habitable. Whenever you water your lawn or hose down your driveway, well, that water eventually evaporates and turns into a cloud. Now, being on a much, much smaller scale than what evaporates from the oceans and lakes, but it's all the same stuff. So where am I going with all this talk about clouds? Well, first, I want to inspire you to take a few seconds each day to look up in the sky and notice clouds. I want you to get a real feel as to how many there are and how often they exist. And secondly, you should know that clouds are a most important feature on our planet. What clouds do primarily is trap heat from the sun. As the heat from the sun rains down on the planet, it penetrates the cloud cover to the surface of the earth. And when that heat bounces up, it's trapped by the clouds, much like a a blanket traps the heat from your body. Clouds keep the sun's heat in and warms our planet. And every manner of flora and fauna on this planet, including humans, needs this warming effect to maintain our lives. It's what's known as the greenhouse effect. And without it, there would be little to no life on Earth, or at least not the type of life that currently flourishes here. See, clouds are not only the bringer of water, but the protector of life. Because without that heat-trapping effect of clouds, this planet would be a cold, dry place with levels of radiation that would kill most everything that we currently see living here. I want you to take notice of the clouds because they are the reason any living, breathing, or photosynthesizing thing can exist on this planet. Clouds don't get anywhere near enough credit. So please, look up in the sky and thank a cloud. You will find them everywhere and in incalculably large quantities. As an example, I was recently on a flight from Philly to Salt Lake City. Then when we took off from Philadelphia and got to about 35,000 feet, I looked out at the clouds below. Now, hardly any land below me was visible during the entire flight. Now, that's over 2,000 miles of continuous cloud cover. And when we descended into Salt Lake City, I took notice of our altitude when we entered the clouds. It was about 25,000 feet. Now, I didn't see anything but white out of my window for many minutes until we were about 3,500 feet from the ground. Now, that's a layer of clouds that was four miles thick. I was so curious about this that I chased down our pilot after the flight in the terminal, and I asked him how common that was to be flying through miles-thick cloud cover. Well, he said it was more the rule than the exception, and that got me to thinking. Now, I'm no meteorologist or anything near a climate scientist, but I am aware of some basic scientific stuff. 
and thinking about clouds and this greenhouse effect thing, well, it occurred to me that the clouds are far and away the single greatest element that makes the greenhouse effect possible. It's a simple water vapor that evaporates from the falling rainwater, irrigation water, and the water we use to wash down our driveways, but mostly, and on a scale way, way larger than the ones I just mentioned, clouds are mostly formed by evaporating water from the oceans and lakes that cover nearly 75% of this planet's surface. So please take a moment to recognize that most simple fact, that water covers 75% of this planet's surface and is the single largest contributor to the climate than anything else by a factor of a million times a million. See, I told you I'm no scientist, but I do know that the oceans and the lakes and the rivers on this planet, well, they dominate the changes in climate to such a degree that makes the science of quantifying its significant presence on our planet very challenging. Even more so challenging when you try to calculate their significance in comparison to the 80% of the humans who live on only 2% of its land surface. Now, please take a moment to recognize that second most important fact. And you can check it out for yourself or you take my word for it, but it's true. 80% of the people living on this planet do so on just over 2% of its land surface. And that land surface is only 25% of the entire planet's surface because the other 75% is water and nobody lives there. So do the math. And a shout out to Joe Taz who helped me with this math because I absolutely struggle with the numbers. What we've concluded is that 80% of the human population on this planet lives on one one-hundredth of 1% of the entire surface of our globe. Which brings me to my different story. The different story about climate change that you won't hear anywhere else. See, we are constantly being told by certain scientists and politicians that climate change is killing our planet and that humans are responsible. It's what's known as human-caused climate change which must be differentiated from natural-caused climate change because there is no doubt that climate is changing. Duh, it changes every day. So let's make sure when we use the term climate change as it pertains to making policy and forming a narrative that we are clear on that distinction. And then we can ask ourselves how much of the changing of the climate is due to human activity versus natural causes. Now, the charge by those who wish to restrict my carbon-burning lifestyle claim that humans are destroying the planet by the burning of fossil fuels, and that my carbon footprint is what is causing the climate to change, and that if all humans stop burning fossil fuels, they can stop that change from happening. Now, did I get that right? Because that's what I hear, that it's humans releasing carbon dioxide into the atmosphere in such large quantities that we are increasing the effect of the greenhouse effect in such significant proportions that we are killing the planet. Yeah, I think I got that right. Now, once again, please keep in mind that I'm not a climatologist. I'm just a stupid building contractor with a little bit of scientific knowledge, which only makes the argument about human-caused climate disasters even more sophomoric, because it doesn't take a scientist to do the math to conclude that no matter how much human-generated carbon dioxide is released into the atmosphere, it is such an insignificant amount compared to the amount of natural greenhouse gases that are always present in our atmosphere most notably clouds, clouds that are formed from the evaporating water that covers 75% of the planet's surface. Now, given all the numbers mentioned above, that humans occupy at best a fraction of a fraction of 1% of the entire surface of our planet, and that we can have any effect on this planet's climate positively or negatively, it's kind of absurd, given the numbers. But I don't want to disparage the environmentalist cause because it is indeed an admirable one. Pollution is bad in any form, but we cannot confuse pollution with the charge of man-caused climate change. 
Now, pollution is bad and should be reduced in every way possible. Please do not conflate my argument against the charge of man-made climate change with my desire, everyone's desire, to curtail pollution and to be good stewards of our planet. That should go without saying, but I don't want to be mistaken as a planet hater, so it must be said. I therefore conclude that it can only be one of two things that drives this man-made planetary disaster cause. It's either people who perpetuate this notion so they can then promote themselves as someone who cares about our planet, so they can then signal their virtue publicly, or they're only in it for the money. Aha, and there you have it. If you've ever listened to any of my podcasts, you know that I am forever wedded to that one indisputable fact that it's always about the money. Because it is. And here's my best example of that indisputable fact as it pertains to the climate change cause. Let's go back to 2009. The federal government passed the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act. Now, this landmark piece of $800 billion legislation included a cool $90 billion earmarked to battle climate change. $90 billion. Now, with that kind of money at play, you can be sure that no level of dishonesty is too improbable for the sharks that swim in these dollar-filled waters. That $90 billion was said to fund shovel-ready green jobs that were never, ever shovel-ready. And the people who stood most to gain a piece of that $90 billion knew it. The term was only used to provide the political cover that allowed that money to flow, all in the name of battling climate change. And that should surprise no one. And it does nothing but hurt the real cause of protecting the environment. And if you have to ask where that money went, well, then you're way behind the curve because it doesn't take a scientist to know where that money went. It's a matter of public record. And if you care enough to know the truth, well, then you can find it out for yourselves. But what you'll find is that the politically well-connected people who invested in wind, solar, and battery technologies to get a piece of that $90 billion pie were the greatest beneficiaries of that taxpayer investment. And no real advancements were ever made. It was always about the money and only made politically possible by the assumption that man is destroying the planet. And let's not forget about the thousands of meteorologists and climatologists who hope to receive funding to throw the scientific shade needed to get some of that $90 billion, as long as they all stick to the same story that they're saving the planet. And any altruistic philanthropist with a beating heart would no doubt jump at the chance to save the planet. And by funding these grants to the climate change scientists who tell them they are saving the planet, well, they can go to their cocktail parties and brag of their virtuistic lifestyle. Most, if not all, science departments depend on the granting of funding for their very existence. And by crafting a doomsday scenario and declaring it settled science, well, they can tug on everyone's virtuistic heartstrings in complete harmony. But let's get back to the science. Now, I used the term crafting, and I did not do so accidentally. Because all the science behind the man-made climate change argument depends on a contrived statistical analysis of the problem that uses projections and modeling to give legitimacy to their argument extrapolating figures that predict future temperatures that do not yet exist. Now, pardon me if I'm a bit skeptical. You see, in my short life, many times have I been told that mankind is destroying the planet in a variety of ways, only to find out that those predictions not only never came true, but were spectacularly inaccurate. I'll take you back to 1960. I remember these same people were telling me of a pending population explosion that would lead to mass starvation ending civilization as we know it in 20 years. Didn't happen. 
In the 1970s, we were told of an ozone hole that is growing ever larger due to the release of certain chemicals in the atmosphere by man. And we were told by NASA, of all organizations, that these UV rays would, quote, sterilize the Earth's surface. Well, that too didn't happen. Then in the 1980s, it was man-made global warming that was the next thing that's going to kill the planet. We were shown pictures of a single iceberg melting and a skinny polar bear to scare us into compliance. We were told in 1980 that by the year 2000, New York City will be underwater. That was just recently in Manhattan. And I can pleasantly report that that also hasn't happened. In 2007, when the former Vice President Al Gore received his Nobel Peace Prize for his work in the field of global warming, he said, and I quote, the entire North Polar ice cap may well be completely gone in five years. Now, that was 15 years ago, and you need to look no further than the satellite picture of the entire North Polar cap to know it's completely still there. So spectacular was his misrepresentation of the problem that it had to be rebranded by changing the name of this contrived cataclysm from global warming to climate change just to keep the problem alive. Like every statistician in the history of statisticians, figures are always cherry-picked to create plausible arguments. But I don't use modeling or projections to support my argument. I use simple, observable common sense. Just look up in the sky and see the clouds. That is what is warming the planet. That is what has always warmed the planet. And no amount of carbon burning can compare to the quantity of the natural occurring evaporating water that turns into the clouds that blankets our planet ever-present and massive in size and quantity, miles thick and miles wide. They are so immense and worldwide that they render all other greenhouse gases combined irrelevant. Now, I always like to use analogies to illustrate a point, and for this one, it might seem a bit flippant given the seriousness of the subject, but it's the best I can do, and I think it's one that will give a somewhat accurate portrayal of how I view the subject. Now, I liken the release of man-made carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to peeing in a pool. Now, in this metaphor, it's an Olympic-sized pool that represents our planet, and the pee of a single occupant represents humans. Yes, it's gross and disgusting and pollution, and it should never be done, but that pee won't destroy the pool. In just a few hours, it will all be filtered out, and the water will return to its unpolluted state. Now, amazingly so, a real-life scenario of this comparison was recently played out when the COVID virus shutdown slowed most of the human activity on the entire planet. And in just a few short months, the planet's pollution levels fell naturally when the natural filtering process of wind and weather was allowed to do its thing. You see, we are far too insignificant an occupant on this blue marble we call Earth to have any effect on its weather. Now, if we wanted to assert our significance, well, we could explode all the nuclear bombs in existence and end most, if not all, life on the planet. But even given that most extreme example of negative human activity, the planet would not be destroyed. The planet would still exist, and in only a few thousand years, life would return. It is in our nature to create a problem that doesn't exist so that we can then give ourselves a reason to feel relevant. We have no world wars or other real pending dooms that most previous generations had to deal with. We are the product of our own human success and are without a significant cause to give us the relevance that is an essential part of our natural human yearnings. Now, I don't doubt that some of these warnings have merit. It's just that I've been lied to so many times by people who wish to take my liberty from me in the name of saving the planet. I would prefer a world that talks to me like an adult instead of trying to scare the child within me. I have a huge problem with fiction presented as fact. 
Now, I can come up with many more examples of how natural occurrences are not calculated into the settled science of climate change. Obvious things like the varying intensities of the sun, uh, erupting volcanoes and wildfires, all of which have a far greater impact on the warming of the Earth's surface temperatures than any human burning fossil fuels. Now, I've been in the middle of more than my fair share of wildfires. Now, my home was twice threatened by wildfire, and some of my neighbor's homes burned completely. I have firsthand experience with the indescribable amount of smoke and debris that these fires belch into the air that blocks the sun for days. I was in the Sierra Mountains in the, in the summer of 2020 when millions of acres of lands burned due to wildfire. I have personally experienced hundreds of miles of ash and debris in every direction that would dwarf anything the world's largest emitters of carbon dioxide can create. So please, don't tell me I can change the planet's climate when the exact opposite is true. And don't take my money or attempt to engineer my lifestyle to suit such a flawed narrative. And worst of all, don't exploit the innocence of a prepubescent girl with a neurodevelopmental disorder to shame me. How dare you? I will never trust governments, and I question everything they do because in my short time here on Earth, I have witnessed the worst of the worst behavior in the name of something that should deserve proper representation that is instead being used to advance a defective political agenda. There is no question that the environment deserves our greatest attention. And doing the right thing for the future of humans and our planet should be at the top of everyone's priorities. But when innocent pawns with genuine concerns or bad scientists in search of funding are used to promote a false narrative, well, they're doing all of us an injustice and ruining any real possibility of preserving this planet's beauty and integrity for future generations. This is Eric Corey, and thank you for listening to my Different Story podcast.